Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode includes discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. The 39 members of Heaven's Gate prepare for their departure from Earth. This is Method and Madness Episode 30, Heaven's Gate, Now Boarding. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Revenge. Method. And madness. On the previous episode of Method and Madness. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. Marshall Applewhite was from a religious family. The son of a minister, a musical talent, he battled frustration with his own sexuality and upon meeting his spiritual partner in the early 70s, seemed to find his purpose. He and Bonnie Nettles created a religious group, a cult, known to most as Heaven's Gate and known in the media at the time as the UFO cult. Throughout the 70s, they went through a recruitment of sorts, gave lectures around the U.S. about how the two of them were representatives from what they referred to as the next level, the kingdom of God, that they had recently returned to earth, taken over the bodies of a man and a woman in their 40s, and their mission was to find the students they'd worked with previously and lead them back to the kingdom via a UFO. According to the Heaven's Gate website, those students were in varying stages of metamorphic transition from membership in the human kingdom to membership in the physical evolutionary level above human. They found dozens of members to join them over the next decade. Members came and went seeking the UFO that they were to board before the Earth was to be recycled. They believed that in Nettles and Applewhite, they found the key to the next level. The next level where they were headed was genderless, and in order to perfect themselves, each member shed themselves of their individuality, dressed in nearly identical drab clothing, tunics with high-buttoned collars, they donned short haircuts, and became celibate. Several male members of the group even willingly and happily, underwent castration to remove any sexual desire. They took on new names, three letters usually from their actual first name, followed by Odie. In 1985, Bonnie Nettles died after a painful battle with cancer. She had lost an eye due to illness earlier, and her fate was hidden from her own family members, who weren't informed of her death until afterward. 
Her death shook the cult, as their beliefs were always that the whole group would one day board the UFO together, in their bodies, their vehicles. But Bonnie, who they called T, had left her body behind. After Nettle's death, Marshall Applewhite grieved and eventually steered the group to a revised belief. Instead of leaving the Earth in their vehicles, their human bodies, they would leave the vehicle behind to board a UFO to the next level. By the 90s, the group had become more reclusive under Applewhite's sole leadership as he taught that the end of days was coming soon and would be here by the turn of the century. He referred to his partner Bonnie as God, and he was Jesus himself. And then in 1995, a new comet was discovered, Hale-Bopp, which was going to be closest to Earth on March 22, 1997, about 120 million miles away, but still visible to the naked eye. When a self-proclaimed psychic speculated that there may be an intelligent object trailing behind the comet, the members of Heaven's Gate saw this as an omen. It was time. A UFO was behind Hale-Bopp, and they would board it when it got closest to Earth. By 1996, the group were living similarly to monks at a mansion about 30 miles from San Diego in Rancho Santa Fe. They were earning money as computer programmers and making preparations for their graduation, their exit from Earth. They lived simply and only allowed certain music and television into their day-to-day. On today's episode, we'll take a look at the cult members themselves, the 38 of them that planned on boarding the UFO with their leader, Applewhite, a.k.a. Doe. What preparations did they take to leave Earth behind? Who did they leave behind? We'll also go over the events that occurred over three days, resulting in the largest mass suicide on U.S. soil. Let's dive in. The true meaning of suicide is to turn against the next level when it is being offered. In these last days, we are focused on two primary tasks. One, of making a last attempt at telling the truth about how the next level may be entered. Our last effort at offering to individuals of this civilization the way to avoid suicide. And two, taking advantage of the rare opportunity we have each day to work individually on our personal overcoming and change in preparation for entering the kingdom of heaven. Think about that one person you trust more than anyone else. Is there someone you believe in 100% that whatever they're telling you is true, that you have no reason to believe anything they've said is BS? And in that person, you believe you found the key to something. Maybe it's a lifestyle, a workout routine, or nutrition plan, or a way to save money or make money. And that in order to achieve blank, you have to do blank. In order to get to your goal weight or to get to your desired body, you must do this. In order to take that grand vacation that you've dreamed of, you must put aside this percentage of your paycheck. In order to get career success, you need to train more in this, become more versed in this skill. Now, if you're someone who's easily influenced, someone who may not do their own research, maybe you followed this advice because to you it makes sense. Someone you trust 
is telling you it. And they're super convincing. They're charismatic. And they have a way of making that change sound really desirable. That weight loss, that vacation, that one thing that will make things better, that will take away any pain that you've been feeling. Maybe that light bulb switches on and now you're feeling free that even though you're not there yet, you have a plan. That in itself is a weight off. It's motivating. And you're going to do those preparations with the person you trust and a team of people that are all headed toward the same goal. You won't be alone. You'll have cheerleaders. You'll have others to lean on if it gets tough. And ultimately, you know you're going to get there. You won't be left behind to struggle with those daily hardships that have plagued you. What if once you've committed to the preparations, you're then told that in order to really achieve your goal, you have to say goodbye to your loved ones? your children, your parents, siblings, your friends, would that be a deal breaker? What would it take for you to say goodbye to everything, to hurt the ones you love and the ones that love you, to follow that one person to your goal? I don't think most people can even answer that. That for many, if you have those things in your life, a spouse, a loving family, a maybe children or a career, there's nothing that would tear you away from that. So then why, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, were people of all ages, races, doing just that? Marshall Applewhite had a reason that was convincing for some. Now, the only time we have an opportunity to leave the human kingdom and go to the kingdom level above human is when there is a member from that kingdom level incarnate in human form saying to you, I'll tell you about a kingdom level beyond here, and if you want to go there, then you have to follow me, because I am the guy who's got the key at the moment. Whatever representative is sent from that kingdom level and comes into the human kingdom, then that's the representative who has that key to that kingdom for that period of time. And it requires, if you move into that evolutionary kingdom, that you leave behind everything of human ways, human behavior, human ignorance, human misinformation. Marion Yvonne Hill, known within Heaven's Gate as Devotee, and her husband Stephen left their family in 1996, left behind their five children, including newborn twins, to join Marshall Applewhite. It's rumored She was suffering from postpartum depression at the time, and when Stephen left the cult a short time later, he had said that Applewhite tried to separate him and his wife. She remained. She was the most junior member of the group and one of the 39 that died by suicide in March 1997. This is merely one example. There are 37 others of people who left things and people behind, including their own individuality to follow a man that was troubled and battling his own demons. If you're already familiar with this case, you know that many of the members of Heaven's Gate were smart, educated, had careers or promise of careers. They had children. While a few were drifters searching for a sense of belonging, many of them abandoned what they had to follow Marshall Applewhite. Gail Mater, a.k.a. Yersodi, 
was about 24 years old when she joined in 1993. She was formerly a boutique owner, and her parents were very close with her. She left behind her life and barely stayed in touch. But she did send her parents a flyer in 1994, which outlined some of the group's information. She made a phone call to mom and dad saying she was living with a group like monks and she wasn't coming back. They hoped she would one day snap out of it. She didn't. Jeffrey Lewis, a.k.a. Thersody, was a member for 10 years and left, but he rejoined 12 years later, saying that his life had no meaning without the classroom. John Craig, a.k.a. Ligoti, left his wife and six kids in 1975 to join the group and apparently attempted to recruit his oldest daughter at one point. Judith Rowland, a.k.a. Wake and Odie, joined her mother and the two of them entered the cult in 1975. Later, her mother left, but Judith remained. She had left behind her husband and two young children. Margaret Richter, a.k.a. Melody, was the valedictorian of her high school class and had a master's in computer science when she joined in 1975. Suzanne and Wayne Cook left behind their 10-year-old daughter Kelly to join, leaving her grandmother to raise her. And the list goes on, that the members of this cult had love, family, jobs, but something was missing. In some way, they must have been suffering to willingly leave it behind and head toward death. And that's not to say that because you have a family, a spouse, or children that you're happy. Some of the members... Alfonso Foster, a.k.a. Questodi, was reportedly suffering from depression over the death of his mother when he joined in 1994. Julie LaMontagne, a.k.a. Lavodi, a nurse that joined in the 1970s and ended up being Applewhite's personal nurse of sorts, was possibly suffering from depression over the loss of her best friend and her father, who had died from drowning and cancer, respectively. And then there was the Star Trek connection. Applewhite had Star Trek on the list of okay-to-watch TV shows and borrowed some of the language and ideas used in the show, making it seem more like a fan club than a religious group. Ironically, one member, Robert Nichols, a.k.a. Distody, was the younger brother of Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, in the original Star Trek series and in several of the films. It makes it difficult to pin one thing, one reason for why someone decided to join Marshall Applewhite. And that is the core of why so many find this cult fascinating, confusing, heartbreaking. We look to ourselves and say, well, I would never, but would we? Taking an objective look, in hindsight, of course, we see a man that struggled with his own sexuality and therefore muted it. And subsequently, that became a huge part of preparation for graduation, exiting Earth for the next level, the requirement. We see a man that might have struggled to fit in here in the real world and created his own world, a level to look forward to where he not only fit in, but he was Jesus. He created a solution to his inner demons, and then he got others to join. 
That was validating. Sociologists have said that over time, mind control is applied systematically, and when done successfully, the members cut off their families, change everything about who they are and how they identify, and are obedient to their leader. And you may have noticed that while members were expected to leave behind their identities, their hobbies, the things that Applewhite was most passionate about, music and religion, remained. That's part of a song that the group had made about their leaders to the tune of Do Re Mi from the 1965 film The Sound of Music, where the names T and Do came from. They sang it at a party in December of 1996. So even decades after the start of the cult, the group were still looking for new membership, and by the mid-90s, with the internet coming into play, they were able to look to the web to find more students for what they called the classroom. Additionally, they had a satellite TV show called Beyond Human, where the group led sessions. If you're curious, the videos are still around online. In the sessions, Applewhite would cover different subjects on how the group was formed, their journey, what the group stood for, and members would help to fill in any gaps to assist the viewer in understanding, if they were open to it. They took out ads and papers and continued to hold lectures in libraries and other venues looking for vehicles ready to rise to another level of existence. And if a potential member did show interest, the group would send them a VHS, a home movie, with more information. Of course, not everybody that encountered the group was enamored with their beliefs. They were met with a ton of rejection, people questioning what made them so confident. Why is it that what they were saying was right or any different than anyone else who could come forward and claim to be the second coming of Christ? In one video, the Heaven's Gate members are seen laughing off this rejection in a how-dare-these-people-not-believe-us kind of way. Five of the members ended up leaving in 1994. One of them that is currently still very open to interviews, you may have seen him in the HBO Max documentary, is Sawyer. He left the group and has since said it's because he flunked out. For him, he struggled with the celibacy that masturbation or what they called nocturnal emissions, a reference from the Bible, was too difficult to overcome. The nocturnal emissions had to be recorded in a log. Sawyer tried to seek out help from Marshall Applewhite, who was very supportive, but ultimately it didn't work out, and Applewhite gave Sawyer money for a plane ticket and everything. Sawyer still believes in the work that Tiendo did and that he will one day pass through Heaven's Gate. One member that left offered some insight into what he really thought about the group under Marshall Applewhite's leadership. Dick Jocelyn, who was once an Air Force pilot trainee, was a member of Heaven's Gate for 15 years. He joined when he was 26 in 1975, leaving behind devastated parents who were shocked. 
Jocelyn had said that what he and Doe had taught didn't sound any crazier than a virgin giving birth in a manger. A former model, he wanted to believe, and he wanted to fit in with something, wanted to feel loved, but something nagged at him. He even attempted to leave the group about four times, always returning with a feeling of guilt for abandoning them. He knew his fellow members intimately. They were family, and he loved them. While in the group, Jocelyn said that members were forbidden from speaking about their former lives. They didn't socialize with people outside of their group. They were told what to wear, eat, what time to go to bed, and when to wake up, and when and what to watch on TV. The group would take turns watching the night sky, looking for a sign that it was time to go. But it became tiresome, all the waiting, with nothing happening. He described Applewhite as charming and gentle, but said that by the time he himself had returned to society in 1990, he was seeing a change in him, that he was starting to lose it. What it came down to was Dick Jocelyn had a mix of emotions, but he missed his freedom. He missed eating the food he liked, chatting about things other than UFOs, and he was beginning to have major doubts about Applewhite's teachings. After leaving the cult, Jocelyn became a gay rights activist and environmentalist, still seeking meaning. He died of AIDS at the age of 51. Frank Lyford, who had joined the group in 1975, left in 1993 and had tried to get his girlfriend, the love of his life, to leave with him. Erica Ernst, a.k.a. Chakoti, stayed and was one of the 39 that died in 1997. Lyford grieved and still does, and has been quoted saying, If I were back on that call with her right now, I would be more emphatic about her leaving. He's also said, quote, We all have a connection to the divine within us. We all have that radio transmitter built in. We don't need anyone to translate that for us. That was the big mistake that we all made, in my mind. It was believing we needed someone else to tell us what our best path should be. And now, let's discuss those final days. After the group received their sign that departure time would be March 22nd, 1997. By now, the hardcore members of the cult remained. Anyone who wasn't feeling it at this point had left. Applewhite had convinced a handful of people, though. 38 of them. The members purchased a telescope and brought it back to their home to observe Comet Hale-Bopp and the UFO behind it, but they were unable to see the spaceship and ended up returning the telescope, saying it didn't work. As the months passed and the comet approached, the group made their final preparations for their exit, their graduation. Reportedly, they began taking trips, excursions like going to SeaWorld, as if they were celebrating their graduation. They purchased phenobarbital a few months earlier in Mexico. It's a barbiturate that can be deadly when mixed with alcohol. Their last meal was at a restaurant in Carlsbad, Marie Callender's, where they all ate the same thing, turkey pot pie, cheesecake with blueberries, and iced tea. The waitstaff later recalled thinking the group was odd with their clothing and matching short haircuts, but that they were polite. 
there was a schedule for their departure and a sign-out sheet. Members logged their departure time and penciled in their return time with question marks or, quote, never or hasta la vista baby. Like they did daily, the group put on a uniform of sorts. All 39 wore the same thing, what Marshall Applewhite equated to being a diver putting on scuba gear. They wore black pants and brand-new Nike Decades, a black sneaker with white swoosh. The Nikes always stuck with me. I remember in 1997 seeing the media reports and the jokes about the Nikes, how they needed something comfortable to walk to the UFO. But in actuality, the Nikes were a good deal, and in early March, two members had purchased them in bulk for $584.45 from a store in San Diego. And it was an inside joke, just dough it being a twist on Nike's slogan. Each member wore their wedding band that they'd received in a previous ceremony in which they each married Marshall Applewhite. And finally, they all had a patch on their shirt which said Heaven's Gate Away Team, a reference to Star Trek. On March 21st, 1997, a video was made, an exit interview, where each member spoke their farewell before graduating to their next level. It's haunting in the sense that they were happy on these videos. They didn't seem scared or anxious in any way. They were confident in their decisions. One happily declared that 39 of them would beam up. Some who had joined after 1985 had never even gotten the chance to meet Bonnie Nettles. They're sitting on camera, declaring their love for tea and dough when they had never even spoken to tea. This shows the impact Applewhite had on these people. Members of Heaven's Gate have described the first time meeting T and Doe as a feeling of knowing immediately that they were the answers. And Marshall Applewhite had charisma. There was something about him that drew the members in. Stephen McCarter, a.k.a. Sorodi, kicked things off in the video with a grin, saying that he'd been with the group for 21 years, and he urged people to read the group's book, or to visit the website to gain a better understanding. Remember, the website, heavensgate.com, is still up and running. Gail, your Sodi, smiled when she talked about how she looked forward to finally meeting T. Nancy Nelson, a.k.a. Wake and Odie, said that people in the world thought she lost her marbles, but insists that she couldn't have made a better choice. In general, The group was very aware of how the media was going to report on their exits. They struggled to put into what they call human words to describe how they feel and compared it to a scientist trying to explain quantum physics to a second grader, called what they were about to experience a gift, and thanked T and Doe in a way that reminded me of how a patient would thank a surgeon who saved their life. They told their eventual viewers of the video that if you wanted to know what the next level alien looked like, you could visit their website. I did. It looks like a generic alien. They were emotional and overwhelmed with their feelings, and that's what makes it difficult to understand. We are listening to these members who lived and breathed this life, some of them for over 20 years. We simplify it in a lot of ways by saying they were crazy, They were lost. Applewhite was a maniac. But some of them had devoted themselves to this for a huge part of their lives. 
And even trying to make sense of this in a three-episode podcast is difficult. Applewhite recorded a lengthy monologue himself where he rambled on and on, his eyes wide, almost hypnotic, saying that humans weren't designed to understand the level above human, letting the viewer know that the group was returning to life, that they'd just been visiting Earth, an Earth that is saturated with lies and misinformation, that having a family and being addicted to society is not right. In actuality, in Applewhite's father's kingdom, there are no mammals. The bodies are similar to human bodies, but don't need hair or teeth. They're more refined. There are no males, females, or children. Children come from the minds that are taken from the human kingdom from hell. He spoke about hating this world. He referred to him and his group as body snatchers and said that Jesus did the exact same thing, that he too borrowed a body and then laid it down. He spoke of his excitement to see Bonnie Nettles, T, his excitement to leave the vehicle he was wearing, and then he turned it back to his classroom, the members who were excited to leave, and that's when the viewer can see the uniforms, the all-black clothing, with a Heaven's Gate away team patch. When the time came, there was a schedule of who would die by suicide and when. The plan was to do so in phases, and the schedule was documented on a sheet called The Routine. And so over the course of three days inside that 9,200-square-foot home in Rancho Santa Fe, the exit began. The first group took a mix of the phenobarbital mixed with applesauce and washed it down with vodka. Eight members assisted the first group of 15 and covered their bodies in purple shrouds. The second group, also 15 people, included Marshall Applewhite. And finally, the remaining nine did the same. There were no purple shrouds left on the final two members, indicating that there was nobody left to cover them. And that was their graduation, a tragic event for those they left behind as 39 bodies lie in a mansion in various rooms. A few former members of Heaven's Gate each received a letter and video via mail on March 25, 1997, which contained the footage of the group saying goodbye. One former member, Rio D'Angelo, went to the mansion on March 26 and entered the large open foyer, recording footage of the eerie scene. He made an anonymous call to the San Diego Sheriff's Office at 1.30 p.m., requesting a welfare check at the residence. Next time, on the conclusion of Heaven's Gate. Law enforcement's arrival to the mansion, how the news was reported in the media, and a few remaining members that didn't exit with the other 39 take graduation into their own hands? And finally, does a letter written by Bonnie Nettles sent to her daughter offer some insight into what 
he really thought about the group and their beliefs? For a full list of the 39 members that died by suicide, please visit our website at methodandmadnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.